Hello and welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series. Let's get fizzing. This is episode seven of our pilot series. Throughout this series, we have shared plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong, and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is hosted by three queen bees of the mind hive, British-German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Wertan, and British-Australian actor and writer Josephine Start. This episode is hosted by Lily McLeish and Tamara von Wertan. This episode, we will be listening to the play Hornet by Josephine Start. Set in a gallery, Hornet spends time in the mind of a young woman as she recalls a relationship with an older artist that may have been coercive and may equally have been a passionate love story. To mix things up a bit, we thought we would change the order this week for our final episode of the pilot series. So we will first be speaking to our special guest, psychotherapist Kate Mills and then end with our interview with writer Josephine Start. We'd also like to say a special thank you to John Schwab, who we had the pleasure of chatting to on his theatre podcast, Curtain Call. If you're interested in finding out more about why we set up Fizzy Sherbet and our process, tune in to the latest Curtain Call episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts. Hornet by Josephine Start. Lorna sits on a polished wooden bench in an empty room of the National Portrait Gallery. She's wearing a suit, the top buttons of her blouse undone. A thin sheen of sweat shimmers over her makeup. Her phone is surreptitiously plugged into a charger on the wall. This is the room with all the dead white people. So dead and so white that they became stone. They've lost their arms and their stomachs, anything that hangs below. Busts. But they're not busty busts, because they are all men. There's some exposed marble tit elsewhere, though, definitely. Another room. Kissable. Cold. Smooth like a coconut's innards. I should go and find them. In a minute. Easier to charge my phone. She checks the doorway feels like the corner tank of an aquarium. The food and the light don't reach. Just krill. She goes to see how much her phone has charged. 43, still. I still feel sick. It's not her. She'd hate it here. Not her taste at all. Old stuff makes her angry, like a teenager. It's easy when I remember. She's an idiot. The kind of adult who calls Shakespeare overrated and expects you'll be impressed. The kind of adult who thinks that they're still young, but who knows, angrily, that they're not. And who loves and who hates that you are. She takes a water bottle from her bag and sips. She closes her eyes. 
Yes. A rippling, velvety Venus. Yes, I'd feel better looking at something like that. A long look that feels like touching. When I've charged up, I'll go find something more... sensual. Or something. She opens her eyes. How long have I been thinking about breasts? Weirdo. I'm a massive, big weirdo. God, some sort of sex pest, some sort of queer cliché sat in a gallery getting... Jesus. I really need to eat something. Something with iron in it, some fucking spinach, anything. A magnet. Breast feeders on the way in. Maybe that's it. Park bench, train carriage, cafe. There will be boob. Not that anyone is actually shouting at them. No one is actually saying, you know, oh, would you put it away? Though I am coiled, I am ready, willing it, waiting for it, longing for a sad beige jacket and a pouting face. Oh, to squash a face like that into the tarmac, to tell some old asshole that those breasts, her breasts are not for him, get fucked. They're not for anyone to dictate, but her. This fictional mother and the fictional pensioner. He's always old, but he hasn't actually materialised yet, so I don't get to squash anything. She stares at a large painting of Queen Victoria. How many babies did she have? Lost a lot. Eleven, I think. I think I remember. Horrible histories. Children love the grim details. Morbid little dwarves. She sits and looks at the other Victorias. Lots of her in here. Like she owns the place. Big skirt, tiny crown, perched like a paperweight. Her head's so round and cabbagey. Oh, and there she is, holding the hand of a man in a turban. Big of her. Annie would find that very orientalist, very exoticizing. She would enjoy explaining it, and then she'd tell, retell, the story of the A-level art teacher she fancied. The one who told her. This isn't a good room to be in. She looks in her bag for something to eat. There's nothing left. She takes another sip of water. I've bought the wrong type of book. Totally wrong. The woman on the cover has bags under her eyes and the cover is that soft, crushed paper that they used for cheap classics. Smells like the 70s. Yellowing. Bleak. A little wedge of sadness at the bottom of my handbag getting stained. Bloody byroast, and they have not... She's in Paris, missing the lover she once lived with there, getting into trouble, drinking too much, getting by off the back of one expensive coat. So, of course, I keep reading myself into all of it. I'm not drinking, at least. Lover is a weird word. I don't trust when people use it in real life. When Annie called me her lover, I knew she was hedging her bets. She takes the book from her bag and finds an underlined section. Lying with a ticket tied round his wrist because he died in a hospital. She turns the pages. And that's everything that happened. And why get an estate about it? But I'm not. I'm not. Can I help it if my heart breaks? If my hands go cold? I mean, I really could have written that. stupid. I do know that it's bad when it's nothing, just a book or just a coincidence or whatever to be seeing signs. And so because I know that, I push those thoughts aside. I try not to play the game 
join the dots because even though I know she's wrong, that she's wrong about me, when I think like that, clues, fate, that sort of thinking, I do start to think, what if you're always seeing things that aren't there, Lorna? Fucking paranoid. And I'm trying to help, but look, I know it's not your fault. You were with a lot of assholes before you were with me. I mean, that's not, not true. And she was different, so different to all of them. So beautiful, a body like warm grass, eyes like truffles, like cedar, like soil, and a face that she called ugly but had everything I loved in it. All those books, all that coffee, the kitchen table with the green vinyl top, I'm not saying I fell in love with her interiors, but she did make the world more, enlarged it, warmed the colours. Curled up on her sofa, she knew how to be so kind, so funny, she ma- Fuck. I can't start thinking like that again. No more epilogues like Mum said, and she's right. No contact, no more thinking it over. And I've got to stop reading fucking horoscopes. She sips some water. Mum says, You were like a thing. A thing chased by a hornet, so distressed, confused by her. Yes, lamb, you were, Lorna, going back and forth, pacing round this kitchen. Oh, will she leave me? Is she coming back? And I'm thinking, God, I hope she's leaving. I hope she doesn't come back. God, she needs someone like Sarah, Lorna, someone who'll give it right back to her, or someone her... And she doesn't say own age, but she thinks it. She can see I would like her to elaborate. More robust? Someone less sensitive, she says, unprompted. Because I am an emotional person, she says. But that's a good thing, she adds quickly. It's not worth reminding Mum that Annie wouldn't actually stay with someone who gave it right back to her. Someone who snapped back, she'd just end it. Oh, come on, another fucking grievance. I can't keep having these conversations with you. Every couple of days, what a waste of fucking time and energy. She was always threatening to end it. And then she'd be round, two days later, like clockwork, a handwritten letter, teary, saying she tried to put everything as clearly as possible, like I needed my apologies in big letters and monosyllabic. They were nice letters, though. I've not burnt them. All such a performance, though, it takes two hours to read our entire WhatsApp thread. But the thing is, I still might, I mean, it's possible that I was wrong. Just about some things. She sips again. Mum says I have to remember that even if I got things wrong, I still tried to speak to her. I did, and it was always such a nightmare when I did. All these accusations, it's so fucking unpleasant. There's no point me defending myself when the whole edifice, the whole way you think of me, is conspiring against me ever being right. What a way of speaking. What does that even mean? Lots of heat coming off the words, but so, I don't even know, impenetrable? Like, she'd changed the sense of... As though, at that speed, words change shape, denature, and start to mean something totally different. Her arguments ran circles, wayward fiery hoops, and me trying to pinch at them, scolding myself by latching on to bits 
words. Edifice. Who says edifice? You know, this word, a crumbling tower block with the windows blown out, grey against a flat blue sky. It leaned a little, my picture of her word, like the leaning tower of Pisa. But I still had no idea what it meant, as in what she meant by it. I could only feel it. And it felt so angry. A fine spray of accusations levelled at a person, me, who did seem, in these descriptions, certainly unreasonable. Lorna, I've given you a home. Love. And you come to me with these, with these petty jealousies, these mad conspiracies. It is, it is, well, it is exhausting, Lorna. You can't stay here if this is how you're going to be. And then she locked me out, left me to the drunks and the night bus. That was just one time. And I'm glad she did. I'm grateful for the clear instances of wrongdoing. Thank you for those bright red flags. Sometimes I wish you hit me. I don't mean that. But a little bit I do. Still, <laughs> what's to miss? Everyone's right when they say they don't understand how I'd miss it. Because it is beyond, beyond understanding. It's just so... Sarah says... She's twice your age, and she asked you to have a baby with her. You said yes, okay, maybe you felt pressured, but then you changed your mind, and she wouldn't forgive you. Makes sense, you were her last chance at that. But it's not what you wanted, Lorna, you wanted to do it the normal way, and that's fine. I mean, Christ, it's normal. They're right. I did not want a baby with a 40-year-old woman who still talks about her A-level art teacher. But I also did want it. And we almost did. It only accidentally didn't happen. And now it's happened in the normal way because I fucked up. And she knows that. And she'll know just how much when she opens the envelope. But they don't know. They don't know how I also failed because I haven't told everyone everything, so maybe I am just a liar, like she said. There. Things don't match up in the story of us. So many things don't add up. I let mum believe in her story of weird professional jealousy. She hated your talents, my lamb. She didn't want well to face the fact that you're just as intelligent as her. More. Only Annie gets to be the star in Annie's world. She's an only child, yes? No. But she's a Libra. Yes. Well. And I let Dad believe in his simpler theory. Shamefully. I hate to say it, Lorne's, but it doesn't last with lesbians. It can't. The power dynamic is too confused. Someone's got to be in charge. Take the reins. And I think with lesbians, always capitalised in his mind, I think, with lesbians, that tussle, that tussle for power, makes it all very unstable. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. And thanks also for all the articles on bisexuality. Annie, weirdly, actually loved my dad. But then Annie also loved Woody Allen. Sometimes I think about the way you love things, and it makes me want to fucking cry. 
Mum's closer to the truth. Maybe. In any case, I've promised. No more artists. And no more Libras. She sees a guard approaching. She quickly stands and pulls the charger from the wall, stuffing it and her phone into her bag. She waits. The guard doesn't appear. They won't let me... So annoying. I'll wait five minutes, see if she comes back. Could go somewhere else. Back to Pret. Somewhere that could be anywhere and where they'll leave me alone. Where no one cares that you haven't bought much and you can plug in your phone and sit in the corner and cry because why did you come here? Why did you ever come here? And especially, why did you come back? And that's fine. They don't care. You have a coffee and they don't care. And you imagine her walking past the window and they don't care. They don't care. Good. She bought her pencils around the corner from here. I could go back. She'd say if she'd opened it, she would have... She checks her phone. I'd know. Before I came here, I... I came down here for an interview, and in the morning it was okay. Wearing the new top and the jacket, makeup, the newly done hair that Mum was keen to stress four or five times on the way to the station really has made all the difference. I was shiny and ready when I came down, a CV in a plastic folder like a teenager, but what are you supposed to do? How else do you go for a job interview? This will be good practice, Lorna, Mum kept saying when she wasn't saying how nice and bouncy my new hair was. You don't even need to get it, you know? It's just really good to go down there, show them what you've got. I think you'll feel really good when you've done this. The man at the station cafe had soft brown eyes. A soft face. I'm always looking for kindness. I will take it over any quality now. I say to myself, knowing that I am lying, because it's the eyes that I liked. But because of their softness... No, I don't know. You can't really tell anything from a person's eyes. All the love songs are liars. But because there was no threat, no threat at all in him, and a sense also of something else, I asked, Where do you live? He says, Crystal Palace. Unbelievable. And yet, of course. Heading home. Of course he's going there, where else? Crystal Palace is a beautiful name. In this sense, it is also a liar. Cinderella would not live in Crystal Palace. There is no twinkling magic there. Victorian upholstered houses and the ghost of a burnt-out museum. And also the woman I love. She is there. Oh, wow, me too. You live there too? Yeah. Cool. What are the chances? What indeed, soft face. It is genuinely amazing what a stranger will do. Just as kind as I imagined, he walked me to her door, held my coat as I posted everything back, slid my secrets back into the house. I was trying to watch for twitching curtains, but also trying so hard to look normal. So you don't live here? I used to. If she did see us, and I don't know if she did, she will think that Softface was the father. He wouldn't have been a bad choice.
The reading of the play was directed by Hannah Berrigan and performed by Josephine Start, with sound design by Julian Starr. Kate Mills is a child and adolescent psychotherapist working in the NHS. Kate studied English at Cambridge before training as an actor at Lambda. As a performer, she spent her 20s immersed in the world of new writing until her love of the rehearsal room and the exploration of character and motivation drew her to psychoanalysis. After completing her master's at Birkbeck, Kate fully committed to psychoanalytic psychotherapy and was accepted onto the child and adolescent psychotherapy training at IPCAPA. Since qualification, Kate has worked in generic CAM service and with looked after children before specialising in therapeutic work with high-risk adolescents. In addition to her clinical work, Kate teaches on the child and adolescent psychotherapy training and has consulted to theatre and filmmakers, combining her knowledge of psychoanalysis, trauma and mental health, literature and theatre to discuss and enrich the creative process. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for coming on the programme. Thank you for having me. So first off, a bit of a strange question to you, which is we're asking all our guests on the podcast. We're called Fizzy Sherbet. And when we started off as Fizzy Sherbet at the Hackney Attic, we gave each audience member a Fizzy Sherbet suite to eat while they were watching the readings. And Mm -hmm. so we're asking everyone if they have a suite with a story behind it. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, A suite with a story. I don't think that I do particularly. Nothing comes to mind. No problem. I mean, I like sherbets, but I'm, I've never been very sort of into sweets. I sort of feel like I can never understand why, you know, you choose like the pick mix in the cinema. I've always been very much a chocolate person. Sorry to disappoint you. Absolutely fine. It's fine. And chocolate in my book are sweets, very much so. That is really fine because also that's not really why we're so excited to have you on the program. (laughs) We really want to talk to you a little bit about your work. You trained as an actor and then trained in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and are now combining a career in clinical work as well as supporting creative processes. Could you just talk a little bit more about your work in both of those areas? Sure. So my work currently, so I work having trained as a a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, the training um, is within the NHS, if you're working with children and adolescents. So I've always been based in the NHS um, since I began my training over 10 years ago now. And at the moment, I'm working in an adolescent team in a CAM service, which is Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Um, And we're a sort of tier three service. I'm aware of all the acronyms in the sort of NHS world, but tier three means that we're just below inpatient. So we're looking after young people who are maybe in and out of hospital, um, who are, you're just well enough to be treated in the community, but you know, are quite seriously unwell and having a really difficult time. So I'm sort of working with that population just with adolescents, although I am trained to work with Uh, little ones and right up to the age of 25 and I see in my work in the NHS I assess and I also treat so I sort of see people when they come in and uh, assess what I think the problem is and then decide the right course of treatment along with the the multidisciplinary team in CAMS and I also offer psychotherapy treatment and that's sort of along the uh, model of one session maybe two 50 minutes every week Um, with breaks you know in the school holidays and that treatment can 
can last for a year, can last for two years in, you know, on rare occasions. And that was one of the big draws in working with children and young people because there's still psychotherapy offered in the NHS, which doesn't happen in adult services. So if you're an adult therapist, you, you really, there are a few posts, but generally people work privately. And I was really keen to work within the NHS. And that's part of what drew me to child and adolescent work, although there were lots of other reasons as well. And I end up doing lots of work with parents and other professionals. And so it's a really varied job, feels very creative. And, and the, the sort of other side of things is less formal really. Um, but from my acting days, my university days, I have lots of friends and sort of acquaintances who are still very much in the theatre and film worlds. And there have been times when they've asked to sort of have a talk with me to think through like a plot line, whether it makes psychological sense or uh, how to sort of use maybe uh, psychoanalytic concepts in the rehearsal room, talk with friends about sort of concepts around play and how play can be used in the rehearsal room. And I really enjoy doing that work because it, although it's always been on a sort of informal basis, it, it, it links up these sort of two sides to my, to my professional career and that, that feels really exciting and um, it, it's nice for me to feel that I haven't left behind the worlds of theatre and literature entirely, you know, it's still very much part of, part of my world. Yes, that's, that's, that, I think that's really interesting uh, and I'm sure that your voice within the collaborative process is a really important one I could imagine and I could imagine as a director really really sort of treasuring that that conversation with you. So do you think that within your so your acting background does it do you find that helpful within you know your work as a psychotherapist or does, do you find that there are influences there or, or not so much? Is it very separate? That's a really good question. I think it's hard now I'm working with adolescents, maybe less so, but certainly when I was working with little children, also I, I worked for a while with looked after children, so children in the care system. And for those children, you know, speaking directly about things is really, really difficult. You can't have a conversation that sort of says, I think you're feeling this and tell me about when this happened to you because it's too live, it's too um, painful. And so a lot of the work with, with, particularly with little ones is in displacement. So I did a lot of work with puppets. I had these six puppets um, that the children loved and a lot of it was sort of acting out scenarios or saying, you know, this is going on for Fox and I sort of acted out and it, it wasn't, it didn't sort of happen, it happened quite sort of naturally I didn't think about it that much but I'm sure my acting background kind of allowed me to feel very comfortable working in that way I never felt self-conscious about uh, using play in that way making up songs performing with the children you know sometimes they'd want us to put on little plays about aspects of their experience or to sing songs together and I think that that creative freedom came naturally to me because of my acting background and and for some children that that worked really well, I think. Yes, I can imagine that. Um, also, I think when we talked with Josephine, we were talking about how writers as well as actors sort of deal in empathy. And that is very much something that translates as well into therapy. Mm. Could we talk a little bit about um, Josephine's play, Hornet? Mm. And 
you read it, didn't you? And yeah. did it bring up any images for you or, or thoughts that you would like to share? Well, I mean, I, I thought it was a wonderful piece, actually. So rich, so rich. Um, I have, you know, I'd love to see it live. I, I think that's one of, you know, because there was, it's so rich with ambiguity. And I think that's why it's, um, it's sort of perfect for a psychotherapist to read. There, there are lots of things that are unsaid. There's things that be, could be taken either way. It's not always clear. And I really felt having read it, gosh, I'd love to see what decisions a director or an actor makes about how to play some of these ambiguous moments. Um, because you could play it in lots of different ways. And of course, that's what makes a text really exciting and open to interpretation. So I think that was, you know, the images that came to mind or the thoughts I was having whilst reading it were around ambiguity, ambivalence, conflict, being torn, and the sense of this young woman, Lorna, the, the main character who's who's in quite a sort of vulnerable mental state, actually. And I think you can see that in the writing and, and the way her thoughts shift and change. And I was really fascinated by her. And, and I think the sort of, uh, the ideas around um, what we hide from ourselves, what we project into other people, how we delude ourselves, how our minds sort of plays tricks on us or, you know, that's all there in the text. So, you know, you, you sort of want to get her on the couch, really. That's what I felt. <laughs> I thought it's like, come and be my patient and we could try and work through conversations. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's quite interesting to that sort of, if, if the character of Clorna were to come to your, uh, to see you and to talk to you about what she's sort of thinking, what would your approach be? Or is that quite a <laughs> complicated question to ask? Well, I suppose it's, um, I think that the thing with psychotherapy, um, and I don't know, maybe some of your listeners have had experience with it, but because it's a long process, you really have time to build the relationship and to build the trust and to understand how, how someone's mind works before you sort of go in with the big guns, you know, you sort of would, you'd want to build up to a lot of things I'd be interested in asking her about. And also I, I think the main thing to always say about psychotherapy is it's a sort of, uh, it's a co-creative process. It's not that the therapist has all the answers. It's, it's thinking together and understanding together. But I think there's definitely something about aggression that I'd want to explore with her because that feels quite latent in the piece. And this idea about victim and perpetrator and how maybe those two positions shift quite rapidly. And in many ways, she's, you know, she's the thing being chased by the hornet. But I'm also was left feeling in what ways is she also a bit of a hornet herself? You know, where's her sting and where's her aggression? And it sort of comes out with the wanting to push the um, pensioner's uh, face um, you know, you, there you get the sort of stabs of aggression, I think. But it's, I wonder, you know, my fantasy about her is that she's quite frightened of her own aggression and it has to be sort of kept in check and repressed. And then what often happens is that other people become very aggressive as we project our aggression elsewhere. So I think that's something I'd be really interested to explore with her. Wow, that sounds, sounds like a great first session with Lorna. <laughs> Um, I am also really interested in, in the setting of the piece. So it's, it's in a museum um, and Lorna is surrounded by these statues of naked men. And <laughs> she's, she's 
kind of in a neutral space, a space you, you can pass through, but also cultural space. Mm-hmm. Um, and she um, has gone there to charge her phone which is something which then traps her in this particular room. So there's a lot going on, a lot of layers. And I think it's a really clever choice. But it made me think what you think about uh, the spaces that we seek out when we're in inner turmoil. Is there something about space and where you can see someone going to, not necessarily hiding, but but choosing to be in a certain space? That's, that's really interesting. She... Yeah, she's chosen this space, the gallery, and I suppose there is that sense of it being open and emotional and yet impersonal, you know, that, that it's not a sort of car park or, you know, it's, it's rich with, with emotion, with, with uh, pictures, with people, with, but it's, it's somewhere she won't be recognised, so in that sense it's impersonal. But... There's this sense with Lorna, and I thought a lot about kind of coincidences, because that comes up again in the piece um, about she's kind of joins the dots, I think she calls it at one point. And so this choosing of the gallery is not accidental. That's my feeling that it's um, that she's put herself there because she says later she could have gone to Pret, you know, so why did she choose the gallery? And perhaps it is a restful place, but there's also lots of um, associations. There's Annie and is she an artist? Um, but she had has some sort of prior relationship with her art teacher, so that's sort of in the background and will get evoked. There's the the naked men, the busts in the room, and this is a young woman who's been in a relationship with another woman and is pregnant. So there's a lot there about gender and sexuality that perhaps she's trying unconsciously to find answers in this room. I think there's also the, the sense that maybe she'll see Annie. I don't know, she brought her pencils nearby and is there a sort of unconscious uh, wish to accidentally bump into her in this space? Uh, so it's, it's all there. And, and then there's also something about the boundaries that I think is quite interesting because she's charging her phone there and she, she's quite worried that the guards are gonna come and find her. So she, she knows she's sort of crossing a boundary there. Um, it's not really the dumb thing to charge your phone in the in the gallery. And that, I think, is quite revealing of her character as well. That sort of, that feeling that boundaries are quite porous and that's something she, she kind of gets a thrill out of and likes, but something that also leaves her feeling quite vulnerable and unstable in some ways. So I think she's sort of, maybe she thinks this is a neutral space, but she's actually putting herself in a very loaded space. And whether that is some sort of attempt to get her mind around this conflict that she seems to be in about whether she should or shouldn't have left the relationship. It's a bit like sort of listening to really sad music or something. It's sort of putting yourself in that space to try and maybe nudge your mind along a bit and try and get to a place where you feel less conflicted and confused. Yeah, yeah. And you've just been, I think you just mentioned the sort of the relationship uh, to the older woman that has ended and uh, could have been, and I suppose we were having a talk with Josephine, the writer, um, uh, yesterday and uh, about also Hornet (laughs) and about the fact that this relationship could have been coercive and potentially even abusive, but it's not really super clear. And she doesn't, she never says the word abuse. 
mm-hmm. and that's and she's sort of feeling these feelings of guilt and regret relief and longing and mm-hmm. i suppose how one of the questions we were sort of asking ourselves was how does this mixture of feelings reflect uh, maybe your own experiences working as a psychotherapist and the nature of trauma mm, mm. um i think it i think the piece rang very true i think it rang very true um and that mixture of longing as as you just put it longing and sort of relief um is really common that it's it's not straightforward that when an abuse you know i'm not saying this was an abusive relationship but but when a relationship that's maybe coercive or controlling or or abusive ends there's not just a clear sense of relief it's it's much more complicated than that because abuse there may be aspects of the abusive relationship that were also giving the person something and you know and that's how uh, that's how relationships that aren't equal and maybe are abusive sort of work because there's there's something that keeps the 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 victim if we want to use that word sort of hooked in you know they're getting something as well but um but they're also being abused at the same time and and you sort of really see that with the way Lorna talks about how you know Annie's face and the kitchen table and the coffee and the book you know she was really getting a, a something she was craving and then what but then she was also getting the the sort of more controlling and abusive and unkind aspects of Annie. And it's really hard to give one up, I think. You know, when you're not in those positions, you think, oh, well, of course this relationship is no good for you. And that's what her mum and dad are sort of saying. But when she's in it, you know, the days where it feels good, it feels great. And that's something she longs for. Mm-hmm. And the days when it doesn't, it's not so easy to turn your back on the bit that feels great. That's that's the conflict. And also, you know, she's had abusive relationships before, I think is the sort of sense. And then you, there's complicated dynamics around, you know, maybe this is what I deserve. Maybe this is what relationships are like. Maybe this is as good as it's going to get for me. Maybe I, I shouldn't give this up because actually there are some good bits and maybe I'm always going to be treated this way because you know that's my lot in life that's what I deserve and and so it's really hard to unstick those ways of thinking and I suppose in a therapy what you might do is trace that right back to where that feeling of this is what relationships are like a a basic sort of attachment pattern where that comes from and you know it's not uncommon to find that people who who suffer in abusive relationships have had Uh, you know abuse very early in their lives or there's something that's happened or in the first attachment relationships with with caregivers that there's something that sets up a model of what relationships are like that that kind of sets a train in motion which isn't of course to to blame people who get into those relationships at all but it we know that that it's very hard to get out of them it's not straightforward and and that can often be to do with this deep-seated sort of feeling that this is what I deserve in relationships and trying to unpick that and change it through the relationship with the therapist really to allow somebody to say actually no I don't deserve a relationship like this I can I can be in a relationship that's that's healthy and and then freeing them to go and find that elsewhere so so it is something I you know that I see a lot in my work um less so with romantic relationships although a little bit with the adolescents of course and actually, I haven't said that quite a lot with the adolescents because a lot of the kids who've been traumatized, you know, do seek out quite traumatic 
relationships in their adolescence where maybe they're at risk of sexual exploitation, um, but somehow they, they have a model of relationships that this is what they're like. This is kind of normal in some way. Yeah. You mentioned um, just now in your answer, um, the voices of the mom and dad in her head as well. Um, we were quite interested to get your approach of how you use the idea of other people's opinions of us within the psychotherapeutic process. Because it's not just her parents, but she has got other voices in the narrative of Hornet as well. Is that something that you, you discuss? Mm, absolutely. And it's, I suppose, like everything, it's, it's complex and, and nuanced and, and trying to untangle uh, what's reality, what's in the external world and what's in our internal world and the, the very complicated dynamic between the two, which is what psychotherapy, psychoanalysis is all about really, um, is hard, you know, so what are mum and dad really saying and what the impact of that might be? Absolutely, that's something we would work with and, and but also how are we interpreting what they're saying? You know, is that what they're really implying or are we sort of, or is Lorna um, shaping that because of what she's thinking and feeling? So trying to disentangle that is, is you know, is complicated. But there's, you know, there is a sense that her mum is almost quite, uh, treats her like a child really in some ways. That was my feeling, you know, and then dad with his capitalization of lesbians, you know, there's a whole dynamic there of what, what does dad think about her sexuality? What, what's going on there? And I suppose all of that would very much be sub, you know, subject matter for the, for the therapy room. And, and through, you know, what does dad think about sexuality? You also get to what do I think about sexuality? How, you know, how much of a internal sort of, is there any internal homophobia in, in Lorna? You know, those sorts of questions. Um, but it kind of comes in through what other people might think and say. Because also they're not in the consulting, they're not in the room. So you always, it's all filtered through, through what the patient is thinking and feeling and how, how they're responding to things. I suppose that's where the work really is. Mm. That's it, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I was, I was actually wondering just sort of to, to slightly step away from Hornet, although um, this is also partly a, a question about Hornet, but more about, I suppose, the process of artists and writers, because this is, I think this play, Josephine was saying to us in the, our interview with her yesterday, this play is slightly based on her feelings that she was having around a relationship that, she, or, I mean, I don't think it's autobiographical, but there are definitely elements of her experience within the play. Uh, and I, I have often worked with writers who have obviously put a lot of their own uh, experiences and also trauma into uh, their writing and their plays and um, have then as a director found that I'm obviously in conversations that are quite um, sensitive and personal and I wondered if there's any um sort of what what would your advice be to writers really about when they sort of add trauma in because sometimes I think I wonder if I mean I think it's uh, obviously it's a process isn't it of working through something through your art 
um, as well and obviously within your writing but I wondered you know how to how can writers look after themselves a bit, or you know how can we protect mm. ourselves uh, as artists when we're sort mm. of putting mm. so much of ourselves into the work mm-hmm. I've sort of got lots of thoughts going on at once trying to think where to start um because I think what you what you said there is is right that sort of sublimation is a you know taking our, our feelings and, and turning them into art is, is a wonderful thing. You know, it's much better to do that than that our feelings act out in other ways. But, you know, it, it can leave the, the artist vulnerable, especially, I think, I don't know, there's something particularly about theatre where it's not like you're writing a novel or you're writing poetry that then you sort of have complete creative control over. You're, you're using maybe your experiences to, to inform or colour a script that then is reinterpreted and, and, and other people will discuss in the rehearsal room. And, and so you're really, I think that it's a sort of particular vulnerability for a writer who's, um, who's writing a play or a script. Um, and I think it is really important to think about the impact. Um, and not everyone will have maybe discussed their trauma in therapy. Um, you know, in, in some ways, this, this, it might be a sort of form of therapy to, to turn it into art. And I think we do, it's right to be careful. And I think maybe that's quite a new development in the creative arts that people are thinking about that more. Um, and it reminds me of the uh, TV series, I May Destroy You. Um, which was on recently and I know that on that production they had a therapist on set um, who was there purely to work with the actors, the crew who might have been re-triggered because that was a show very much about abuse, sexual abuse, sexual assault and and maybe we think we're fine, but then one day, gosh, something gets triggered and, and we really don't feel fine at all. And actually having a therapist on set who's there to talk you through, maybe to, to help you um, sort of process something, maybe to direct you to further help if you need it, I think is brilliant. And but that's the first time I've ever heard of it. And perhaps that's something that will become part of, part of the culture more and more. I think it's really important. You know, and... I, having been at drama school you know you see you see what gets stirred up when people are working with with material that involves trauma and that they don't always have a place to take all those feelings and it all gets put into the performance which is fine but then the performance ends and you come off stage and you go home and and what are you left with so I think putting things in place to protect writers directors performers and is really important yeah yeah um, I agree and and just out of interest so because I suppose um, the other obviously the other uh, on the flip side of that I suppose is uh, the writers who potentially are writing about trauma or mental health issues who have not experienced it personally uh, mm-hmm. and are sort of researching or working yeah on something secondhand uh, knowledge mm-hmm. and uh, what are the sort of do you think what are the sort of pitfalls when they or you know what what are the are there plays or are there pieces of work that you've seen where you think oh they've just dealt with it they've just approached it in a slightly uh not so useful way or what how would you what would your thoughts be on yeah how trauma and mental health issues should be approached in plays Mm, mm, i mean i i can't think of anything 
you know that comes immediately to mind but perhaps more on television I think I, I quite often have the experience watching television where I think oh gosh you know that's so um that's quite superficial that's that's quite a one-dimensional sort of presentation of of you know we know that mental health difficulties um they're 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 so complex and everything is always multi-determined. You know, there's never one reason why somebody becomes X, Y, or Z or develops some sort of difficulty. It's always multi-layered. And, um, and so when things are presented in quite a straightforward way, I feel that that does do a disservice to, um, to people uh, who, who struggle with their mental health and also the professionals trying to help them. So I, I that sort of, irks me sometimes and I think in general when sort of writing about mental health if it's not something you've experienced or even if it ha is to be honest um, because things are so subjective would be you know if it was a big part of a, of a piece maybe to workshop it and um, you know show it to a mixture of, of people who I who identify as, as having that difficulty maybe professionals and, and see how it lands with them before kind of putting it out there, I think, would be my advice. That's great. Um, thank you so much, Kate. I, I would love to talk to you for much longer, but we have to keep it a little bit short, unfortunately. So we have one last question for you. Um, and we're also asking that uh, to everyone, and we're assembling a really lovely list now of um, wonderful names. Are there any women in the arts or otherwise, alive or otherwise, who are inspiring to you mm. not necessarily in the arts no could be from anywhere could also be personal or um people you don't know well i think i'll give you one of each there's a, a couples therapist from the states called esther perel i don't know if you've heard of her she has a podcast and i think she brings um and obviously she's a couples therapist but brings psychoanalytic psychodynamic thinking to people in a way that I find really exciting and wonderful because people don't always understand psychotherapy and why should they you know it's and it's it's always a struggle to get psychotherapy you know keep it in the NHS keep it accessible because a long treatment you know but anything that sort of shows this stuff is really important I'm always a bit of a champion of and, and so I think helpful podcast is wonderful that sounds great do you happen to know the name of the podcast so we can let oh, people... where do we begin brilliant okay a um it, it's a sort of live recording of a couple session so anyone who's interested in what therapy you know of course it's couples therapy but what that relationship with the therapist is like i think it, it breaks down a lot of assumptions that we kind of sit there in stony silence you know <laughs> with our cigars you know <laughs> <laughs> right I will definitely look that up as soon as we get off the interview <laughs> you said you had another name yeah and I think I've got two theatre maker women friends who I'd recommend people sort of keep on their radar one is Susanna Hislop and the other is Caroline Horton and they both write really rich and wonderful plays informed um, by sort of being a woman in this world, I think. And they're both wonderful. I don't know if either of them have got, I don't think either of them have got shows on at the moment, but, but they're, they're often making work for radio, for theatre. So they're names to, 
to have on your list. Brilliant, we will. Yeah, and, no, and nobody is making work really right now. No. Very few people <laughs> with the lockdown. Podcast though, it's exciting. You know, what a great thing to be doing um, during this time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us about Hornet. It's been absolutely wonderful to hear your thoughts on it. And yeah, very brilliant to talk to you. Thank you. Director Hannah Berrigan tells us why she chose to direct Hornet. Through the voice of Lorna, Josephine Stark depicts a mind in turmoil at the end of a relationship, a relationship with an older woman who was, if not abusive, then at least severely dominating. The marks of the domination are still there um, in Lorna's voice. Um, and we see how Annie shaped and framed Lorna's world so much that it's hard for her to extract herself, despite her intellectual reason um, trying to, to help her through um, and out the other end. Um, this was a familiar uh, feeling to me, which I thought was described, depicted extremely honestly and in such a very sophisticated way um, in Josephine's writing. Um, I was also struck by the voice of the parents who play very loudly um, as if uh, Lorna was now being steered by uh, another dominating force and within it she is sort of rudderless <laughs> just tied to her phone seeing what's going to happen next. I was very very happy to be asked to direct it because um, I think Josephine's writing is astute and complex and original. Um, moving from the theatre into a recording studio had the advantage of us being able to be really intimate with that voice um, and come really close to Lorna um, whereas in the theatre although it was lovely to have a, a live audience um, Josephine had to project which was sort of antithetical to the the quietness and the um, intimacy of the piece so um yeah, very, very happy to record it as a podcast. Josephine Start is a British-Australian writer and actor. She trained at Cambridge University, followed by Australia's National Institute of Dramatic Art, and has worked in theatre and film in both countries. Long listed for the Bruntwood and the BAFTA Rowcliffe Award, amongst other writing prizes, she was an invited writer at the Alpine Fellowship's Venice 2018 Symposium, alongside Polly Stenham and Emma Watson. Her most recent play, Killing It, was at Vault Festival 2020, starring Janet Henfrey, Wolf Hall, The Crown, and Donna Kroll, Eastern Promises, Doctor Who. Acting accolades include Best Acting Duo, at the LA Short Film Festival for I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire and America's No Budge Best Actress Award for her semi-improvised lead role in Blue Monday, also winner of Best Drama. Also an improv comic, Josephine is an associate of Live Beasts Theatre Company called A Reason to be Cheerful by Tim Crouch and co-founder of Gum Improv, 
nominated for Phoenix Remixes Best Comedy Group 2019. Great. Hi, Jo. Hello. Hiya. Have you on the podcast. <laughs> so and, nice. Uh, <laughs> for all our listeners who are listening to the previous episodes, your voice will be very familiar because, of course, you're one of our lovely hosts. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're through the looking glass and we're yeah. just interviewing each other um, yeah. so, uh, what we thought we'd do for the pilot season or series is we would start off with Tamara's play Lemons and finish with your play Hornet and felt that was quite a nice sort of satisfying little sandwich mm. to create for the pilot so that is what we have done yeah. so yeah <laughs> And of course, our next question will not be a surprise to you either. Oh God, okay, it will. Well, <laughs> Josephine, yes. nobody knows the sweets game as well as you. Oh God, you know, I haven't actually, it's, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, the sweets game. <laughs> yes, okay, so I think sweet-wise, my dad is a big fan of sweets. So actually when I think of boiled sweets, I think more of kind of sharing sweets with him because he's, yeah, he really loves particularly aniseed balls, which are these sweets that I, I've never found anyone else who enjoys them in any way. They look like kind of um, dark red, like maroon ball bearings. And they are, they're, they're very hard little balls and you get them in a you have to go to somewhere quite old-fashioned to get them. And when I was growing up, there was this wonderful place that still exists called the Age Exchange. And it's a kind of museum slash community hub slash shop geared towards older people. And it's that they do work with memory and Alzheimer's, but they have a shop that's set up like it's the 1940s, which is great for older people. And also it's kind of a museum and they had a little sweet shop and you could get lemon sherbets actually as well, uh, but also aniseed balls and all the kind of old-fashioned sweets. So yeah, I think hanging out there is probably what I think of. Yeah. Super. Nice. <laughs> so uh, let's have a chat about your beautiful play Hornet. Mm. And of course, our first question to you is, what was the inspiration behind the play? Where did the idea come from? I think, uh, so for Hornet, I think I was kind of building it in scraps in terms of the language of it. I was writing, I had kind of bits of the text kind of hidden in my phone. It was one of those pieces where I was just like, I'd been kind of noticing things about, yeah, about how I was kind of understanding language at a time. So I think the play is a couple of years old now and I wrote it inspired by something that had happened a few years ago, which was an experience I had in thankfully not terribly long lived, but a relationship that was not brilliant. And yeah, I kind of found notes that I'd written to myself from around that time about just the total kind of confusion as to what the hell was going on. And also I should say like the, the, the characters in it are fictional. So the character of Annie is not actually based on a real person, but the sensation of, of the experience is, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Well, it's, it's a beautifully written piece about a confused young woman and her relationship with an older woman who's possibly abusive towards her. Can you say a bit more when you wrote it, what you want the audience to take away from it? Yeah, I don't, um, I suppose in a sense, I wanted them to feel, because it was written for the stage. It was a, it was a short play that got performed, you know, a few times at a few different theatres. And I think as a play, as a physical play, it's direct address because I really like, I like the closeness of speaking directly to an audience. 
I enjoy that. And I, I think as an audience member as well, like I feel the power of that when someone is kind of, when the, when the line of communication isn't disrupted in any way, like I think that feels really powerful. And I suppose it kind of felt like that can feel quite unique to theatre, but actually one of the reasons I thought of using this one as opposed to anything newer or different for for this podcast is that actually I was thinking like, oh, in a way it's similar to radio, so yet to an audio drama because you're in the audience's head, you're, you've got that closeness again, you're very, very close and it's kind of conversational. And I guess in terms of what I wanted to, an impression I wanted to leave was to slightly complicate or I guess complicates the wrong word because it sounds antagonistic but um, I suppose the experience that I had was around a total confusion as to how to define a relationship and how to kind of put it away in a way when there are question marks around how good or healthy or ideal it was and I think in some instances it's really clear-cut where you can say that was definitely like a hundred percent a terrible experience and I wish it hadn't happened or I you know I feel nothing but kind of antipathy towards that person but that kind of wasn't my experience and also reading about it with other people and talking about because I don't think it's uncommon either I think unfortunately it happens all the time it's really complicated I think the feelings that you have can be very mixed and also I didn't I, I never like the idea in anything that I write or do or perform in even of anyone else's of these kind of black and white characters that are totally good or totally bad even if they are doing things that are bad or you know manipulative or whatever so I suppose it was just kind of spending a bit of time in that space talking through as a character yeah kind of like like what's happened here and what do you think and and it's interesting because I kind of in a way, I wonder if it was really a particularly safe thing to do because I was putting it sort of in the audience's hands of being like, in terms of talking to them afterwards, being like, what do you, what do you think of, of this? Like, do you think, like, what do you think of this character? And it was kind of, I guess, slightly, people can turn around and be like, I'm really annoyed by that character and I think she's really wet or whatever, or, or you know, whatever. And I think in a way that's maybe the danger of using anything slightly personal in your work is that you're then sort of handing it over for judgment. But, um, but that's you what are, I did. Yeah, yeah, you're making yeah. yourself vulnerable in a certain mm. way. But yeah. um, what I find really interesting, what you said about the there's no black or white. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that is kind of, that is really what needs to be opened up for debate as well, because as you say, a lot of people might experience elements in relationships that yeah. are coercive or in in some way abusive or, you know, but mm-hmm. there will, the, the danger in a way is that this is not all they experience. They experience the good along with the bad. And then it is very, very hard to extricate yourself from yeah, a relationship. I, I think if you have an idea of a bad relationship would look like this, and I would be miserable all the time, and I would be, you know, these kind of, then, then you don't really understand what's, yeah, I think you can stay in something so much longer. And also, I think, I don't know, I mean, I, it's, it's a really difficult topic, um, because obviously, I think the, you know, the language around it is very, very difficult, because I think once you start to even use the word abuse, and I don't use the word. In, yes, <laughs> like I'm sorry. Said, in, no, 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 but like, but I was kind of like, I don't, I don't use it, but I kind of, but that's because I kind of, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you would necessarily in that situation. And the questions she has around, I mean, there's a line in it that I always 
I don't even know how I feel about it, but I kept it in there because it felt true to me, which is that sometimes I wish you hit me, um, mm. which is kind of like, you know, I seem like, oh, fuck, is that, is that quite tasteless? Because obviously not to diminish a situation where that is also happening. But I think it felt important to, to say, you know, you can be in a situation that is very controlling, you know, very belittling and, and it not have these kind of, not have the kind of the stickers that we all mm. know kind of labeled all over it you know yes um, the clarity of this yeah. is where there's a border and a lot of people mm, say yeah. hitting someone that that is the mm. red line that you're crossing but mm. what if you're skirting along that line yeah and not crossing it? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah yeah i was really struck also by obviously where you set it uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. In the public space but also not only a public space but in the museum and just her being surrounded by all these naked busts and and uh, and, and also her relationship to the paintings to Queen Victoria is, is it mm. yeah yeah and I just uh, I really quite enjoyed that setting and that sort of um, her inner mono her thoughts and just her surrounding and just that that sort of I can't find the right word right now but. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know um, yeah. Do you mean a kind of relationship to the ob to the objects and the inner world type of thing? Or yeah, but also having that mm. sort of those feelings and those thoughts whilst you're sitting in a quite a public space. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, yeah. I think I, I think I like. I wanted it to be public, as you say, because I think she feels very exposed. And she doesn't have anywhere to go, I think is the thing. She doesn't live in the, the city. Her, you know, she's come, she used to, and she's moved out again. She's come back in, you know, sensibly for a job interview, but actually to do this other thing and to kind of post these letters. And maybe she doesn't, you know, maybe catch a glimpse of this person, maybe not. She's not even really allowed herself to plan for it. You know, it's just, it's, she's leaving it very open. And I suppose, yeah, I guess that... I guess I saw a lot of myself in that as well, kind of being like, when you're, when you're just leaving yourself very open, you're kind of like hoping for, for, for fate to direct you a little bit. And so you go into these kind and, and you've got, but you've got nowhere to go. So you have to kind of find these sanctuary spaces. So she's in the portrait gallery, which is free. So she can sit in there. And it's also, I thought maybe it would be, sort of comforting in a way to be somewhere that feels kind of quiet and full of distractions and also she's not she's gone into a quite an unpopular room she's gone into a room that's got the art that nobody really wants to see anymore uh, <laughs> you know like it's not she's not kind of sought out the best most exciting exhibition she's she's just gone somewhere to be to, well and also to charge her phone she's she's got this phone that's that's nearly dead so she needs to kind of plug it into the wall and you know also also based on personal experience of the constantly failing <laughs> technology uh so <laughs> But I suppose yeah. that is an element of yeah. your writing that, uh, uh, again, just full disclosure, yeah. obviously Joe and I have worked on a couple of pieces together now. And the joy of your writing, I think, or for me personally, very much so, is like there is a lot of irony or humour in it as well. And the fact mm. that, for instance, her phone is almost dead, so she's having to charge it covertly in a museum or mm. with the last play that we worked on together with Killing It, the fact that she arrives home drenched because she's walked <laughs> into the Thames. I mean, you put them mm. in you put your characters in quite unbelievable, but yet totally believable situations, I think. Yeah. 
I yes, I, and that's my experience of the world, Lily. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy. I do enjoy an absurdly uncomfortable moment. That's that's where mm. I. That's where I live. I think. Um, <laughs> yes, I think that really strikes me about the the charging of the phone because it puts you in a position, puts the character in a position where they're sort of doing something on the sly. But then, yeah. then, but then, being surrounded by all this history as well, and all the the beauty of the of the objects, and I kind of also was thinking if there is comfort in seeking out something permanent, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're in a really fleeting moment. Definitely, yeah. No, I think that's that's yeah, definitely true. I think I mean I think that's the thing with these kind of these big institutions as well. These kind of these big old public buildings that you can still touch wood go into for free yeah i mean i think that's part of the brilliance of them is that they yeah you know they they provide theoretically they should provide everyone with something yeah some 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 connection to publicly owned art and space and i think there is comfort in that and i think it makes sense to me that she's that she's there but it also i think it makes sense but there's also something a little bit pathetic would be too strong a word but I guess you know she's she is a little bit childish as well it's almost like she's kind of taken herself on a school trip you know it's yeah. like she's not she's not gone to a cafe or a pub or something she's gone to somewhere where I mean again it comes back to to money as well you know she doesn't have any doesn't have any money and that is something that I wanted to I don't know, when I write about London, like I feel, I often feel quite frustrated when I see depictions of London because I just like my experience and certainly, you know, like, and, and other people's experience is it's a very, it's an extremely expensive place to be. <laughs> and, mm. and, uh, and I think the reality of it doesn't get portrayed. So like, you know, I think there's, I understand, I understand why she would choose that place for, for good and for slightly kind of sad reasons as well. Yes. But I think this is, this is so amazing about it because it, it makes complete sense on practical terms and it, that's why it's so recognizable. But then you have this layer of poetry and beauty that that's written into the piece as well. Like when you describe the statues as the inside mm. of coconut and there are images that you conjure up that really stay with mm. you and at the same time there is a lot of emotional layering happening so yeah as you said she's taking herself on a school trip or maybe that was a place where her parents would have yeah. taken her yeah maybe and, and and i think also yeah like wanting something beautiful as well now you meant like kind of the longing to find and to be honest i don't think that the pictures of queen victoria are that i think they're more just kind of they're interesting in another way but she talks about wanting to go and at some point she's going to go and find something sensual and you know something that she'll really love and I think Lorna is a romantic in a sense I think and romantic people can get themselves into these situations I think where they're romanticizing relationships that should not be romanticized maybe and I think I wanted to get that in there as well for her kind of like she like this lot this kind of looking around for maybe there's something really gorgeous in here actually and in the relationship as well like, you know maybe there's something really amazing in this <laughs> like you know it's not just shit yeah <laughs> uh, yeah mm. yeah 
yeah. earlier you referenced, you talked about how you'd started writing bits of it on your phone. And I was mm. sort of really sort of intrigued because uh, I obviously slightly knowing how you write, maybe mm. to just talk a tiny bit about your writing process, just because uh, mm. I love the fact that you write in different sort of on different, <laughs> on different <laughs> medium, but also just yeah. how, how you sort of develop your writing. Yeah, I, I really like phones because I think you always have them. And I think in a way, I have a notebook as well. And I actually, I like to write longhand if I can. I do write longhand every day. But the problem with writing longhand is it's, the problem and the good thing is that you have to then kind of type it up again. So everything takes twice as long. But in a way, that's quite good because it's an editing process and it does get better, I think. But in a way, the thing I like about always having access to a phone so that you can always write something down as soon as it comes in. So the idea is really fresh. And I do think the sooner you can write an idea down or a piece of dialogue down or an observation down, the better. Like, I do think it's like seafood. I think it loses something. The, the longer you, <laughs> the longer you're away from it, it slightly changes, I think, in your mind. Or you forget it completely. Like, I, I can't remember where I read it or who said it, but I think one of the, it was someone asked someone, <laughs> someone asked someone, you know, what's a piece of advice that you, uh, that you never remember? Or so what's, a, what's something that you always say to yourself that isn't true? And it was, I'll remember this later, which is very true. <laughs> which is very true. I, if I don't write it down, I will tell myself, I'll remember that. And then I don't. And I think observation as a writer, and as an actor as well, because I act as well. And I think observation is key and so and I think phones are very democratic actually and notebooks can be a bit fussy and a bit like I'm a writer look at me with my notebook which I don't know I feel like I'm almost in a bit of a character when I have my notebook publicly out and about whereas a phone I don't anyway the question yeah writing lots of notes and then I think I also yeah dialogue I think sometimes again I don't know if it's maybe coming from an acting background or or improv as well like sometimes I'll, what I'll do is I'll just write a scene. I can hear I can hear two voices. It seems like talking to each other. So I'll just write down. I don't know who they are. I won't give them a name, but I'll just kind of give them dashes, and I'll just write a conversation, and kind of from the conversation, kind of work out where am I? <laughs> who are these people? Why are they saying these things? Which does sound a bit mad. I think now I say it out loud, but I think that's yeah writing down conversations often arguments so actually yeah my notebook is does probably look does resemble something quite disturbing because it will be these arguments between two people that just <laughs> you know that will get slimmed down kind and that of, is where the drama is isn't isn't it yeah yeah and you know obviously yeah you, you'd cut it down and you wouldn't have them always doing that all the time but I suppose yeah getting to the heart of something like I think it can be quite useful to write out two people fighting because what they're fighting about is what's this thing about, you know? Yeah. 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 I also wanted to, I mean, we, we know we have worked together mostly with mm. me as writer and you as actor yeah. um, and you've done really brilliant work in, in my short film. I don't want to set the world on fire and also in the white bike, which was, mm -hmm. which was yeah. brilliant. But I was wondering as a writer and also working as an actor, what, how does that change or, or what are the advantages of that for you? Do you feel that that informs that your acting informs your writing and also which of the two came first for you or were they just mm. always there? 
Well, in terms of which of the two came first, I really don't know because I think I started doing both in a very informal way quite young. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this the other day. The first play I wrote, I think, was a radio play that I wrote when I was in Brownies that I insisted all the Brownies had to do with me. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was, and I only did it because my parents, I was just, I was showing off because I found my parents both used to be journalists and they had an old recording device that they'd used when they interviewed people. And I'd kind of found it and just wanted to kind of use it and bring it in. So I was like, I'm going to write something that me and my, me and the brownies can record on this old 1980s bit of crap. <laughs> and it was a really weird, I remember nothing about it apart from the fact that it was a kind of comedy of manners with two neighbours arguing about topiary. Fuck knows. I don't know. Who knows? Like, anyway. So yeah. But then I also used to do loads of, lots of kind of acting and playing. And I think I studied English first and I was quite weird at university, I think, because I was like, I don't want to write. I just want to act. And I was really quite anti writing, possibly as a slight rebellion to my parents. I don't know. I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to do something very, very different. And also if I act, then I can't write. I really believe that. I just thought it would be bad to mix the two socially to kind of get known for one thing and not another so I was like I'll just stick to the acting and then I went to drama school but when I was at drama school I kind of couldn't stop writing because I found drama school really hard and I think I needed another outlet so so yeah I think that's oh, and it that, sounds as, yeah yeah, yeah it's really interesting no no I, I feel like that's that advice is something that's being given out to a lot of students that you can't mm. do more than one thing well and yeah. I think it's basically bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I think no, it's, it's really interesting because you have lots of people who have different sides to their career and, and especially, you know, working in publishing, working in theatre mm. publishing. So many um, great playwrights are also actors because they, they know mm. what they would like to say or they, what they, how they would like to the words that yeah. they would like someone to write for them, they just write, and then yeah, but it's that all, makes it, good writing. It is. I mean, it's all. It is obviously bullshit because it's all. An, it's all an empathetic act, isn't it? Like you know, either, yeah. either way, the tool is slightly different, but yeah. that's what it is. And I, yeah, I'm extremely suspicious of people that are kind of snobby about that now. But I didn't. Obviously, I didn't used to be. You, res you respect the opinions of you know snobs when you're yeah. younger exactly so for all the listeners yeah. out there yeah. <laughs> who are just starting out in theater don't listen to them <laughs> listen no. to us no yeah how's it when you because this is the thing uh, obviously in killing it you were in it and also you wrote it how yeah. do you feel when you're performing in your own plays do you are you able to sort of is it an easy task to keep those hats quite separately or you know do you swap the hats in rehearsals or how do you do that i think it really depends i think that's where a director becomes really important so i yeah i try to only work with directors that i really really trust <laughs> lily <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and others as well so hannah who directed this i've worked with on a couple of things as well and there's other people as well but like yeah i i, I am a bit I think that's where, because you need someone who you, for me anyway, I need someone where I feel like you can go to them with the kind of 
cringy existential arguments that you might be having with yourself about you know what am i what am i doing here and uh, is this am i being too much am i giving am i giving notes or you know like i don't mm -hmm. know because i think it is slight it shouldn't i mean it isn't because i mean shakespeare was a writer and an actor so it, it isn't new at all but it feels kind of like new territory somehow or vaguely you know i suppose it must be different if you're acting in something that you've written so you can't have that outside view as yeah much. so it's sort of your that's the sort of well i guess that and again that must that's, be. yeah i think you need to be working with people whose taste you really trust so that if they give you a note you can sort of just relax into the note and be like, well, I trust your, I trust your view. I trust your taste. You're watching this. And you also, I know that you like me and I know that you kind of know what I'm, you know, like I can't. And whereas I think if you're working with someone that you don't really, really trust, you can't trust the, you can't take the notes and then you get tied up in circles because yeah, you do need an outside I helping because a piece of like no piece of writing is really finished when it gets to the rehearsal room I don't think it's kind of it's going to become finished in the rehearsal room and so yeah it's definitely hard to wear those hats unless you've got other people involved mm. to do it successfully I mean you could you could do it and it would just maybe be a bit lacking but yeah yeah really interesting you trained in Australia didn't you and your yeah. mom is Australian and yeah. that was just sort of you straddle two countries as well. And how is that? Do you feel there's a difference in Australia and the UK just in the working practice and just in theatre or what's your experience of straddling these two countries? Well, in a way, in a way, it's sort of hard for me to say, partly because I'm fairly early career, I'll be honest. So I kind of I can't I can't speak to kind of working in big institutions in either country from personal experience. But I think I mean, there I mean, there's, there's obvious differences between the industries just in terms of, I mean, like, there's a boring example of size, you know, like the UK's industry is simply a lot bigger. And I think, I think maybe when I was living in Australia, one of the things that you'd hear or feel was that it still felt with the big guys with the really big theatres that they were slightly led by the rest of the world be that the UK or New York mm -hmm. and that things would come to Australia like Australia was maybe like just a season or so behind and just you know like maybe they'll bring out an English work or they'll do you know and I think you know parts of that are maybe unfair to say but I think there is something there is something in it and which is not to say there's not also brilliant, amazing Australian work being made, but the industry is simply smaller and the investment in arts and culture is less. It's just less. And it's a real problem, I think, for Australian artists. However, they are incredibly resourceful and, you know, Australian artists are, are brilliant. They are so, you know, I've worked with so many amazing Australian artists. So, yeah, they make incredible work. But I think it was a bit odd because I think I always felt, because my mum is very Australian. <laughs> and, and, I, and I, and she'd always told me that I was as well. <laughs> like I think it's kind of a weird thing where, where I kind of, she'd always, like, I don't know, like it's slightly a refrain growing up where if I was being a, a bit annoying or a bit timid or something she'd be like stop being so bloody English you know like you know like you're not you're not English you're like you know and it's it's kind of it's I mean which is slightly mean but I think English as a pejorative 
word I think and 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 this idea that like you're not you're you're not this you're you're this you have this other culture like come on like you're bold and Aussie (laughs) and all these things and I think and obviously you know when I went to Australia to to live and because I can you know I've got a passport and, I, and I'd been back and forth and then I went and studied over there and lived there for a bit and and I suddenly you know like that classic thing of being like well I now feel more English than than anything I'm be, you know like all you know all anyone really seems to notice about me is how English I am <laughs> and I've I've never felt you know I've always felt very separate to that because I've always been told that I am so yeah I think it's a funny thing struggling. Funny to. thing, definitely. Mm. I completely feel the same about England and Germany. Yeah. Exactly mm. the same. Always mm. feeling so English when I was here mm. in Germany. And then when I moved to London and lived in London, I was like, oh geez, I feel like I'm quite mm. German suddenly. <laughs> so weird. And I would never have identified as being German up until that point. Like just never. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to know what to do, particularly training as an actor. I was like, I just don't know what the fuck to do. Like, I don't know what identity. I don't know whether to have an Australian accent because I learned one and I can do one. And I was told to kind of go into castings with one. But it's still, you know, and people say the same in America. If you go and work in America, like go around with an American accent, and you'll get more work. But it's, but you know, you you feel like you're always in character. Mm. Um, so yeah. But I was also, I mean, it's. But I think, I think, nostalgia or like a sense of national identity is a very funny, weird thing because I definitely was in Australia. People were saying, you know, oh, you've got, you know, you're so English. You've got this English voice, blah blah blah. But like. I was like fully leaning into it and I would be making kind of like suet puddings and like, you know, like big, big roasts and all this stuff that I would never do in the UK. And I was just, I was just like, cause I missed, I missed this thing. I was like, God, I really, I really want this like English, English thing. And like, just very weird, very weird. And I bet yeah. that as soon as you got back, you stopped yeah. doing that. Of course, yeah, yeah of yeah. course. But, like, I don't do that now. Like I don't, you no. know. And now I kind of, you know, like now, obviously, like all, like I just, you know, I would love to be in Australia right now. Like I would just, I mean, partly because we're going into winter here, um, so I'd love to be anywhere, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah. You're ne- you're never at home. No, you're not. <laughs> that is so great. Well, um, there's one yeah. last question before our last question, actually, that I would be quite okay. interested <laughs> in if we have time. <laughs> um, sure, sure. Which is when you think about your work as a writer, mm. is there a common theme or something that you kind of that comes to mind that you feel connects your pieces? That could could be anything. Could be who you write for, or your use mm. of language, your style, anything. It's a very mean question. No, I don't know because I think I think maybe at one point I thought uh, I thought oh I'm quite a political writer. Like I didn't think that I was, but like a lot of the things that I'm writing seem to be connected to you know like we worked on a piece to your boy your your son and your daughter were both in Mary Maria, (laughs) which was which was a piece all about childcare and the politics of childcare, and it was really politically led. And but then I also. I, there's things that I make where it's like, I just, you know, like Hornet, it feels, um, but I think the thing is, even, well, I was going to say it feels more emotionally, but actually it's all emotionally led. It's all just things that I feel very intensely and I feel other people must also feel very intensely as well. And it's not even a kind of an attitude about a problem, like this is wrong or this is right. It's just 
what to do with feeling so lost or what to do with I think yeah maybe maybe what to do with feelings is kind of underneath like because in killing it was like what what do you do with grief like what do you what do you do with it like can you make it useful and you know like or like what to do with immense injustice like a feeling of you know with the childcare thing just being like what like there's nothing in a way there's nothing we can do about this so do we like what to what to do with it like I think maybe that's that's something that I'm and or maybe that's something like that and yeah and examining how people relate to each other when these questions are in the air and what it does what it does to the atmosphere I suppose kind of people living with each other with these kind of big questions and struggles in the background yeah that's, that's it. <laughs> it's a good answer. I was going to say, I also think that mm. just as someone who reads and directs or, you know, experiences mm. your work, I, I think you've got a really very strong voice and like a very recognisable style, I think, as well to your, uh, okay. which I don't even know how to, would not necessarily know even how to mm. put into words, but uh, I think that, the that for instance, the, uh, that humour is, a, you know, and that, yeah, humour plays a really long, strong part of it as well, and sort of the quirkiness yeah. to it, and the maybe, maybe to be honest, well. yeah. I mean, if I'm, I kind of didn't want to say like, but like, I do, I do like, I do really like comedy, and I also, I really believe, I really believe in comedy. Like, I kind of sometimes, I, I, uh, if something looks extremely serious and extreme and, ext- and extremely kind of to me like po faced. I don't believe it and it's not because I'm like oh I won't have a good time like it's not that it's just like I just don't believe it that's not my experience of the world mm-hmm. my experience of the world is people laughing at the most painful things yeah. all the time and that's so I suppose yeah I really I believe in I believe in comedy yeah, yeah. but you do have a really unique <laughs> writing style I remember we were in a poetry workshop together and we yeah. all had to come up with sort of improvised, like quick writing bits. And I, I could have picked yours out blind from all of them because it was just so different and, and quirky and, um, and the imagery in it was really strong. So, yeah, I think that's definitely something that I see in your work again and again. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so now to our last question, yeah. um, which is uh we are putting together and we will be posting on our to our listeners we will be posting this list on our website uh in the near future uh imminent future let's put it that way and Mm -hmm. we're asking everyone who we're interviewing on our podcast who are the inspiring women in your life well lily and tomorrow (laughs) i did preempt this question um (laughs) and i knew it was the one because I'm, I'm incredibly bad with names. I knew this was the one question where I would just look like an absolute tit if I didn't prep for it. So, um, so it's just like, so I've written, I've written some names down so I can fire them off fairly quickly. Um, so, and also I should say I haven't included anyone I personally know because if I started doing that, I'm very, you know, I'm obviously incredibly inspired by all my friends and all my colleagues, and you know that goes without saying. But you're not in the list. Um, <laughs> well maybe um uh okay so I really yes so at the moment I currently really admire MP Nadia Whittam um for the Labour Party I think she's just done something very inspirational she's very young she's 24 
she's I think she's brilliant you can read into what she's just done but yeah I think she's great and um inspirational equally similarly kind of political I really like there's someone online called Shardine Taylor Stone who we'd love to come on the podcast sometime Shardine <laughs> if you're interested uh, <laughs> um she's she's a brilliant uh, musician and trade unionist and socialist and speaker and I I really rate her um if you're someone that goes online I would look at her I think she's great I also so those are kind of people I felt like I had to say because they're just doing inspiring things for me at the moment intellectually and politically um but in terms of uh, artistic work I think when I was younger I was very inspired by Zadie Smith partly for her novels which are great but also I think she's a brilliant speaker on the value specifically the value of libraries I did her speech on the importance of saving a library in London when I was at drama school we had to perform two speeches one that we agreed with and one that we didn't and we we're supposed to find quite unique ones and I'm I'm very pro-library and so is she so you can look that speech up she's brilliant um, and obviously she's a fantastic novelist. I really, really love these three filmmakers. So Joanna Hogg is fantastic. Uh, she's English. Celine Siana, who's French, incapable of making a bad film, just amazing, stunning. Marine Arda, who's German, who wrote, uh, sorry, well, who wrote and directed um, Tony Erdman, which is just fucking fabulous. Um, I don't know if you've seen, you've, yeah, I just oh, yes. love that. Oh, that's, I mean, really, that's possibly a piece of work I wish I'd made the most. I just I love it. Um, uh, Daisy May Cooper, who's another actor, writer, she's phenomenal. She made This Country TV series with her brother. And she also, throughout lockdown, has just been doing really inspiring, wonderful Instagram workshops for young writers, or for all, not young writers, all writers um, who haven't kind of had their chance in the industry yet. She's, I think she's, she's fantastic. Deborah Levy and Lucia Berlin. Uh, and Olga Tokarczuk, who's a, she's Polish, Deborah Levy is South African, uh, Lucia Berlin is American, I believe. They're fantastic writers who I love. Louise Renison, because when I was younger, she's a, she wrote uh, Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, uh, which is just a funny <laughs> series of books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just thought I had to have her in there because honestly, like, I think it was the first book that made me just laugh out loud for hours and hours and hours. And I just, it would be disingenuous to say that that wasn't probably a very formative reading experience for me. That, yeah, um, I, yeah, I yeah. can't really see that, actually. I yeah. know that so well, Joe. I really can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's, I just, I mean, she, she died and at least, no, a couple of years ago, it was tragic. Like, she died far too young and... I don't know, again, I just think if you, if you can make, if you can make people laugh through a fucking book, like you're, you're a genius, you're a genius. And, and they're, they're so underrated comedy writers like that, particularly for young girls, like what a, what a hero. And my last one is actually an actress called Anna Calder Marshall, who's an older British actress who I saw in a play called Love at the National a few years ago, which is maybe one of my favorite experiences at the theater, I mean, at the theater, just because she, it was the play was the play was great the play was about um a hostel uh, a kind of uh, yeah a hostel for people that have not yet been housed and who are homeless and our families living in this accommodation and she played this older woman who was also there she was the mum of one of the families that was living there and she was just phenomenal like just like I've never experienced anything like it I had like the cheapest seat which is ironically at the very front so you're right in the action which is amazing like why would you pay for not to be there and um and she just uh, just like she did this thing where the whole piece was incredibly moving and she and it, but it was it wasn't kind of interactive it was just a kind of you know, it was a play with the fourth wall up 
but she did this thing where she was she had this amazing speech and she suddenly like she reached out and she was looking at me she was you know centimeters really away from my face and she held out her hand and she was so close and I was so I was just weeping at this point and she and she held my hand and I just thought that is a fucking stunning performer because they're doing this play and it's beautiful but they're aware of the audience and they're and they're playing with both so beautifully and that's an actor and like yeah so her <laughs> uh yeah so wow yeah fantastic list yeah so that's that's my list and also obviously uh louis mcleish and tamara <laughs> they inspire me daily and uh, <laughs> i wouldn't be yeah i and no, genuinely I, I yeah i'm very proud to be working with you both and it's been a joy likewise thank you likewise thank you joe <laughs> thanks for coming and having no a Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Lily McLeish with intro music by Jane Dixon. This is the last episode of our pilot series. Thank you so much for listening and keep an eye on our website, Twitter and Instagram for news on future episodes and extra fizzy surprises. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and on how to contribute your own play to our podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website fizzysherbetplays.com